Turn with me to Psalm 146. Tonight we finish a short summer series on the Psalms before, Lord willing, we turn next week to the book of Ephesians. I hope over the course of the two semesters we'll look at the first half and then the second half of the Paul's letter to the Ephesians beginning next week. But uh, we turn now to Psalm 146. It's the first of the last five Alleluia Psalms in the book of Psalms. There are 150 Psalms, and the last five are all praise songs. Uh, It's almost as if you've arrived at the the crescendo, or you've been at the the 4th of July fireworks display, and this is the grand finale. And so there's this uh, massive expression of praise to the Lord. And so we look at Psalm 146 this evening. C.S. Lewis said it well, All enjoyment spontaneously overflows into praise. We delight to praise what we enjoy because the praise not merely expresses but completes the enjoyment. This is what the psalmist does. you, You know, it's not just Christians or Jews or Muslims who worship. Everyone worships something. Atheists value, take delight in, and joy in something. Everybody does. Worship expresses joy and value and is expressed in praise. Like when you jump to your feet at a touchdown and you say, did you see that? That was incredible. Wow, what are you doing? You're, you're in a sense saying that's worthy. Let's celebrate that. It's a, a manner of worship. Of, of declaring the worth of something. We delight in it. Something or someone we all do. The psalmist ends the book of Psalms with a chorus of alleluias to the Almighty God. Now before we read the passage, I want to say a few words which I normally wouldn't spend much time on, but because we're a new church and I want you to hear my understanding of these things, it would be helpful to do this. Before we read this... It's helpful to recognize, in the first place, Alleluia is a compound word from Hallel, or to praise, and Yah, or a a, a contraction of Yahweh, the the personal name of the God of the Old Testament. So praise Yahweh is what the psalmist here is saying. And that's a good time to mention that in your Bible, probably for most, your English Bible translation, where in the Old Testament the translators have have placed the word Lord all in capitals, capital L, capital, capital O, etc. That's the translation of this word Yahweh, which, not to be too confusing here, older translators translated as Jehovah. If you want another reason for that, we can talk about that later. But just recognize that Yahweh is a better translation. Lord is a title... And Yahweh is a personal name, and for that reason, I think it's helpful for us as we read our Bible to think this name. This is the name God met Moses with at the burning bush and declared himself the God who binds himself in relationship to his people. When he said to Moses, Yahweh, when he said, I am who I am to you, or I will be who I will be to you, it's a form of the verb to be. It's a, a present or future tense. But, but do you understand what I'm saying? Lord is an appropriate ascription to God. He is the Lord. The Bible calls him that. It's a title of great dignity. 
Yahweh is his personal covenant name by which he binds himself to his people. And is, in that sense, it's a warmer name. And it's more familiar and intimate. And, and, and so, as I read Psalm 146, I'm going to substitute Yahweh for all the uh, lords there where appropriate. And I want you to understand that and why I'm doing that. Uh, I think it's helpful to think of God that way. Psalm 146. Let me invite you to give your attention to God's word. Praise Yahweh. Praise Yahweh, O my soul. I will praise Yahweh as long as I live. I will sing praises to my God while I have my being. Put not your trust in princes, in a son of man in whom there is no salvation. When his breath departs, he returns to the earth. On that very day, his plans perish. Blessed is he whose help is the God of Jacob, whose hope is in Yahweh his God, who made heaven and earth, the sea, and all that is in them, who keeps faith forever, who executes justice for the oppressed, who gives food to the hungry, Yahweh sets the prisoners free. Yahweh opens the eyes of the blind. Yahweh lifts up those who are bowed down. Yahweh loves the righteous. Yahweh watches over the sojourners. He upholds the widow and the fatherless. But the way of the wicked, he brings to ruin. Yahweh will reign forever. Your God, O Zion, to all generations. Praise Yahweh. Amen. This is God's word. May he write it on our hearts. Let's look to him in prayer. Our Father in heaven, we pray that you would honor and glorify yourself. I pray that you would help us to know you, enjoy you, and bring glory to you. I pray that you would lift up Jesus before our eyes and draw us to him. I pray that you would heal our hurts. You would come to the aid of your people. You would... Give us hope, for we ask it in Jesus' name. Amen. Psalm 146, the author has front-loaded his application. Okay, Psalm uh, 146 verses 1 and 2 and then 3 to 5 is, is his, his application of what he says about God in verses 6 through 10. And uh, he, in other words, he calls us to praise God. Yahweh, he calls us to trust in Yahweh. And then he piles up all these reasons why we can and should. And so uh, I want, as we think about this text tonight, I want to take the passage in reverse. And I actually want to start with verses 5 through 10, the inducements to hope in God. And then work backwards to verses 3 through 5, an invitation to hope in God. And then verses 1 and 2, the inclination of those who hope in God. And think about those three things with you. In the first place, uh, notice this long list of character traits and activities of this God. And he's piling up for you inducements to hope in Yahweh. Reasons to do so. He's trying to persuade you. And it's not, let me say this, it's not that all of these are promises that God will always do these things for everybody, nor that he will do them right this minute for all people who believe, but that we have no other one to hope in for these things. 
that even when others accomplish them, like, for instance, a judge setting prisoners free or a surgeon restoring sight to the blind or Christians adopting orphans and caring for them, we see the hand of God behind that. There is no other God who's at work to do this stuff because there is no other God. Yahweh's behind it all. This is what he's saying. And, and there's a quick dozen things I want to say. As you, as you walk through this list, uh, an unusual uh, sermon, almost Puritan. No, let's hope not. They never ended their sermons, will I think, and appropriately. But look, look at all the things he says about what this God is like. Notice verse 6, he's our creator. He made heaven and earth and the sea. He's got the whole world in his hands, the psalmist is saying to us. He's, he's got the itsy-bitsy baby in his hands. He's got the mamas and the papas in his hands. He's got the whole world in his hands is what he's saying. Children, you're right to sing of your creator who owns it all because he made it all. And when you turn to the New Testament, you find that this, it's said of Jesus here that, that, that though this is Yahweh, the God of the Old Testament, the New Testament says this is Jesus. He's the image of the invisible God, Colossians 1. For by him all things were created in heaven and on earth, visible and invisible, whether thrones or dominions or rulers or authorities, all things were created through him and for him. Nobody else did that, the psalmist is saying. You have no one else to go to. When you need help and hope, not ultimately. And then he says, Yahweh's our promise keeper. At the end of verse 6, he keeps faith forever so you can bank on him. And how many a father has said to his child, we'll do this, we'll do that, and doesn't come through. Don't raise your right hand. But it's true, all men will fail you at some level, but God keeps faith forever. And then thirdly, he's our defender, verse 7. He executes justice for the oppressed here. The psalmist is saying, look, he's going to call the wicked to account. This is what he does. And even if you don't see it, he says, maybe you long for some injustice to be made right and you have no earthly hope. To see that happen. The psalmist is saying God is the one who will set that right. And yet we have to say we continue to live in a world filled with injustice. And how do we explain that? Very briefly. Maybe too simply. But to say that God is also far more patient than we are with others. I mean when people injure me. If I'm in a good mood, I want them forgiven and I'm willing to let it go. But there are times we long for justice and we'd be, we'd be quick to execute it if it was in our hands to do it. But God is very patient, very patient. But don't mistake his patience for his permission. He executes justice for the oppressed. It's inescapable. But in the fourth place, he's our provider. He, verse 7, in the middle of it, who gives food to the hungry. Yahweh does this. Sometimes it's miraculously, like I've been reading in 1 Kings about the ravens that fed Elijah the prophet when he fled the king's wrath. And he was hiding out by the brook and he had no food and God sent ravens to feed him. Sometimes it's miraculous like when Christ fed the thousands with food that was meant for just an individual. God will do it sometimes like that. More often than not, he does it through the mundane. You pray, give me my daily bread. 
And he does. You go to work. And he provides through your labors. My mechanic prays, give me my daily bread. And my car breaks down so God can pass the money through. But this is what God does. And what shall we say of those who have spiritual hunger, who hunger and thirst for righteousness? Jesus says they will be satisfied. But, but in the fifth place, he's also our liberator. End of verse 7. He sets the prisoners free. Now, I did not plan it this way, friends, but we just read how God, in answer to the prayers of his people, set Peter free from his prison. It's a glorious thing, just as God set Israel free from their captivity to Egypt. Just as God spiritually also sets his people free by breaking the bondage of sin in our lives, by breaking the chain of sin that enslaves us to our sin. And Charles Wesley, the great hymn writer, in his hymn, uh, And Can It Be That Thou My God Shouldst Die For Me, says, Long my imprisoned spirit lay, fast bound in sin and nature's night. Thine eye diffused a quickening ray. I woke, the dungeon flamed with light. You see, you see what he's saying? He's saying, I was, I was bound in sin and in darkness, and God pierced it with a ray of light from his throne. And what happened? My chains fell off. My heart was free. I rose, went forth, and followed thee. This is what God does. He sets captives free to walk freely with him. But he does more than that. He's not just our liberator. He's our healer. Verse 8, he opens the eyes of the blind. Jesus did this in his earthly ministry, and he does it spiritually for all. For all who receive the gospel. Just as John Newton put it, amazing grace, how sweet the sound that saved a wretch like me. I once was lost, but now am found, was blind, but now I see. How did you see the gospel, my friends? Where did you get your eyes to see? It was God who opened your eyes, who healed your eyes. And so do you have some loved one, I want to say to you? You long for them to know the gospel. Who can open their eyes? The psalmist is saying to you, Yahweh is the one who gives sight to the blind. He can give them. But he's not only our healer, he's our restorer. He lifts up those who are bowed down. End of verse, or middle of verse 8 here. He, he opposes the proud is the language of the Bible, but he exalts the humble. He lifts us up when we're helpless. We're right where he wants us. But he's also the lover of our soul. He doesn't just restore us, he loves us. It says he loves the righteous. And here, this is not the arrogant pride of a man who's perfect saying, well, of course he loves me. The righteous in the Psalms are those who trust in the Lord to be saved. And the wicked are those who reject the Lord and his salvation. The righteous is the one who says, I know I'm a sinner, please save me. And the wicked says, I don't need you. And he loves, and then he's our welcomer, verse 9. He, notice he watches over the sojourners. What's a sojourner? It's a person who's, who's passing through, who doesn't live as a resident and as a citizen in his country. But, but 
you know that the Old Testament Israelites were commanded to care for the aliens and the strangers who lived within their gates. Why? Because God cares for them. And what are you, dear Christian? You are a person who can sing, Jesus sought me when a stranger wandering from the throne of God and he to rescue me from danger interposed his precious blood. This is what Jesus did for you. He befriended you when you were without the friendship of God. He loved you. Who are the sojourners in our community? We've got to ask. Who are the aliens and the strangers in Siloam Springs? What about non-citizens of the United States? Or how about this one? Who are the aliens? How about college students? Did anybody smile? I, I meant that to be a joke. You're not an alien. But, but, but think about that just for a moment. They've left home. They've left mom. They've left dad. They've left family. They've left friends. They've left the community they know, the church they know. They're in a new place, new town, no friends, no nobody. And they're going to live here a while among us. They are the sojourner. God watches over. He takes special care to watch over people in this condition, he says. And should we not as a church also? But then he's, he's not just the welcomer. He's the upholder. He upholds the widow and the fatherless. End of verse 9. He upholds those whose earthly aid he himself has taken. He's taken away the husband. He's taken away the parent. And yet he upholds them, it says. In, uh, in the year 125, approximately, a, a, a Christian wrote a letter to the emperor describing to him Christianity, trying to make a defense for why Christianity was basically was good. And he, and he said this about the church. Oh, that this would be us, friends. They love one another. And from widows, they do not turn away their esteem. And they deliver the orphan from him who treats him harshly. And he who has gives to him who has not without boasting. And when they see a stranger, they take him into their homes and rejoice over him as a very brother. That's what the church was like. May that be our church, because that would be a church like Yahweh, who loves the widow and the orphan and the stranger and delights to help the helpless. But notice at the end of verse 9, Yahweh is also the destroyer. But the way of the wicked he brings to ruin, it says. He thwarts their way. He turns it upside down. You ever hear, I read this years ago now, about the guy who stole a purse, took the credit cards to the racetrack, and won $10,000 on a race? They credited it to his credit card, which wasn't his at all. The ironic justice of that just is sweet to my soul. But uh, think, of, think of your great Old Testament example in, in, in the story of Esther. I mean, here's Haman who, who set out to destroy the people of God. And yet for such a time as this, God has raised up this woman who gains the ear of the king And the consequence of it is this, that though Haman wants to destroy Malachi and the Jews and actually has built a platform to hang Malachi, yet God in his ironic justice has Haman hung upon that very platform. 
Charles Spurgeon says this, everything goes wrong with him who goes wrong. God is saying to you, you cannot trifle with me. I'm all these things and I am your forever king. Yahweh will reign forever, your God, O Zion, to all generations. You see what he's saying, friends, as he piles all these things together. He's saying no one else should ever get credit for any of these things above God. No one else is like God. No one else can do what only God can do. And these are your inducements to hope in him. If you long for these things, long for them from him. And then there's an invitation to hope in God, verses 3 through 5. And so we come to his application. He says, listen, oh, true happiness is found in having this God as your help and your hope. But don't put your trust in princes, in a son of man in whom there is no salvation. I think he's urging us here, friends, to be realists, but not cynics, and to be optimists, but not pessimists. What am I saying? Well, look, it's, it's our natural infatuation to place our greatest confidence in people to help us, even ourselves to be our own help. Melinda and I, years ago, as we started out in parenting, read everything we could get our hands on, we came across some literature called Go, Growing Kids God's Way, which, though on occasion, had a very biblical principle that they wanted you to apply. At the end of it, Having read it, what we took away from it and the tenor of it was this. If you as a parent will just get it right, then your kid will be all right. Totally running right past the need for the grace of God to be at work in our parenting and in our children. For God himself to do what only God can do. Oh, we always, friends, result to trusting ourselves or trusting others. And yet the psalmist reminds us, man is weak, he says. Look at the language there. There's no salvation in us, end of verse 3. We're all, even the best of men is but a fallen son of Adam, frail children of dust and feeble feeble is frail. And we're temporary. Our breath departs, we return to the earth. The greatest of us die and can die at any time. And our agenda is fleeting. The, the thoughts and plans that we have die with us. They don't survive to the next generations. Charles Spurgeon says, Men are always far too apt to depend upon the great ones of earth and forget the great one above. And this, he says, is this habit is the fruitful source of disappointment. Are you disappointed? The psalmist is no stranger to your feelings. People have let him down. He has learned, do not put your trust in princes. But he's realistic here. He's not a cynic. Listen, I want to work that out just a bit here. He knows that people are weak and temporary and fleeting. But don't let that realism get you angry and resentful and give up. In the 80s, a man said to his pastor, in a very cynical way, you know, we, we used to trust the generals, and then Vietnam changed all that. And we used to trust the politicians, but Watergate changed all that. We used to trust the scientists, and then Three Mile Island changed all that. We used to trust the economists, and then the recession changed all that. Now we know there is no one to trust. 
Well, that cynicism hasn't gone away. It's only growing deeper, perhaps, in our culture. We might say today we used to trust our coaches. But Penn State changed all that. And we used to trust the clergy. But scandal after scandal has changed all that. We used to trust our parents. But divorce has changed all that. We used to trust our friends. Now Facebook gossip has changed all that. It's easy, easy to grow cynical of every institution, every program, every person. We think things should be better than they are by now. But I want to say to you, do not give up because people have failed you. And don't be frantic because you think you need to find some other person to fix your world. No one is able, only God is. That's what he's saying. And so let me say a couple of words by way of application. A nonpartisan word and a meddling word. A nonpartisan word. What, what, what am I saying there? Well, I want to be very clear that our church welcomes and invites people on all sides of all the issues. God's not a partisan to our policy debates, and however much the Bible informs those debates and ought to inform those decisions. The church itself is not an expert on the best way to bring about God's will in matters of civil policy. And it's not my role to advocate directly particular policy. Who am I or any pastor? We are not experts on representative democracy and how that democracy should enforce justice and kindness on the earth in which God delights. So we're all welcome here. We're all invited here. We're glad that you're here. If you're a diehard conservative, if you're a happy libertarian, if you're I'm going to change the world liberal, whatever you are, I don't care how you voted in the last election. I don't care how you vote in the next election. In that regard, you're welcome here. But this passage reminds you that the only kingdom that lasts is the kingdom of Yahweh. It's a kingdom not of this world, but it has entered this world. And we as Christian people, the church, are called to be in the world and for the world. But not of the world. And the message we have is not a political agenda for 21st century America, but God's agenda for every tribe, every tongue, every people throughout the history of the world. And that message is this, God has come to earth. Jesus has died and risen, and he is King of kings, and he is Lord of lords, and there is no other, and there is no better, and happy are those... Who trust in him, as the psalmist says. But now let me meddle a little bit. Did I offend anybody? I, I meant to. Now let me meddle closer to home. Dear married friends and engaged couples and singles who long to be married and children living at home with parents, this is passage is a reminder to us that in marriage we cannot be Jesus for the other person and we must not look to the other person to be Jesus for us. When the psalmist says, do not put your trust in princes and in the son of man, he's being realistic. He's not being cynical, but he understands that only God can be God for you. Listen, I... I realize Paul in Ephesians tells husbands, love your wives as Christ loves the church. 
Serve her like Jesus has served all of us. Absolutely. But even the wife of the best husband knows that he is weak and he will fail her. And that in his best days, he points her to the blessed Savior himself. And in his worst of days, he reminds her that she needs that blessed Savior. Who will not fail her. Listen, I'm I'm not building an argument here for why we don't need each other. It was not good that Adam should be alone in the garden. And so God made Eve for her. And together, he brought them together in mutual friendship so that they would be a help to one another. I'm simply saying that no, as the psalmist is, no human being can bear the weight of being God to you. And nor should they have to. And if your expectation is that they will be Jesus for you, you will crush them by that expectation. And you will always be disappointed. But if, and so if you aren't finding your life in Jesus, you'll suck the life out of that other person. And instead, we need to be resourced by the life of Jesus in order to be a blessing to the other person whom we point to Christ who is our life. But, so the psalmist, I'm saying, is being a, being a realist. He's not being a cynical. He's not being cynical. He understands the inadequacy of man, the brevity of life. So we don't just throw up our hands in disgust and say, well, you know, good governance doesn't matter, can't happen. No politician can be trusted. Godliness doesn't matter, can't happen because some Christian minister was a wolf in sheep's clothing. And that was tragic. And I'm sorry that that's happened. We don't say marriage doesn't matter because people always let you down. Instead, we say these things do matter because there's something that matters even more. Who makes these things matter? The king and his kingdom which is eternal and everlasting. And so the psalmist says, look for your help and your hope in Yahweh. And he says, be an optimist, not a pessimist. The help and hope here, I think, are delightfully tied together. They're both present and future. We look to him now for help and we look down the road for, uh, in, in, in trust, in faith, hoping, longing. There was a, there's a story told about a school system in which it was this large, massive school system. When kids were out sick or at the hospital, they were resourced in such a way that they hired uh, teachers and assigned them to the kids in the hospital to go and help them with their work so that they didn't get too far behind. And so one day this woman got a name and a room number and was told to go. And so she stopped by the teacher, this kid's own teacher, and said, well, what can I do? And she said, well, could you go and work on nouns and adverbs with him so he doesn't get too far behind? And so she went. She went. Nobody had told her that this boy had been badly burned. It was in tremendous pain. She was upset at the sight of the boy. She stammered and told him, I've been sent by the school to help you nouns and adverbs. And when she left, she felt like she hadn't accomplished anything at all. But the next day, the nurse says to her, what did you do to that boy? And, and she thought, well, I, what did I do? I, I, what did I do wrong? I, did, I started to apologize. She says, no, no, you know what I mean. We've been worried about that little boy ever since yesterday. His whole attitude, however, has changed. He's fighting back. He's responding to treatment. It's though, as though he's decided to live. 
Two weeks later, the boy explained it himself. He had completely given up hope until the teacher arrived. And that changed everything when he came to the simple realization, which he expressed this way. They wouldn't send a teacher to work on nouns and adverbs with a dying boy, would they? And it changed his whole outlook. That little bit of help gave him a whole lot of hope. This, I think, is what the psalmist is saying. We get both from God. He's the God who has the whole world in his hands, which he has made, and he's sovereign over it. And he loves us and covenants, binds himself, and he died on a cross to give you life. And he was raised to give you hope in the resurrection. And some of you are still saying, but look, all that's great. I'm simply not worthy of being helped. After all the things that I have done, are you kidding me? Well, then would you look at, would you look at what the psalmist says about him? Verse 5, who is he looking to help for? Your help is in the God of who? The God of Jacob. Now, do you know who Jacob was? Jacob was the usurper, the deceiver. This is what his name means. This is who he was. He was an unrighteous man, but... He wanted what God was offering, and he basically connived to get it from his brother. And that's grace, because God gave it to him, because he wanted it. This is the God who does not make you shape up and get right before he will help you, but a God who loves to hear the helpless say, oh, help me, because he's gracious. And that is an invitation to you and I to hope in him. But the last thing, very briefly, is this. You see the inclination of those who hope in Yahweh. What's the inclination? Well, verses 1 and 2. Praise the Lord. Bless the Lord. Oh, my soul. The inclination is to praise, right? Because to receive the gifts and to ignore the giver is the essence of idolatry. And one of the ways we praise him is we sing David the warrior, David the king, David the poet, David the philosopher is David the singer of psalms. And if you know even the taste of the help and the hope of this Lord, Lord Jesus, Yahweh, then there is in your heart an inclination to sing his praise. But you have to stir up that inclination. I love how honest John Newton is When he says, Jesus, my shepherd, brother, friend, my prophet, priest, and king, my Lord, my life, my way, my end, accept the praise I bring. The very next line of that is, weak is the effort of my heart, and cold my warmest thought. But when I see thee as thou art, I'll praise thee as I ought. And he's talking about at the resurrection. And so he says, Till then, I would thy love proclaim with every fleeting breath. And may the music of thy name refresh my soul in death. You see, you have to to remind yourself, you're weak at this, you're cold at this, you need him to stir you up. So the psalmist says, praise the Lord. And he talks to himself, oh my soul, do it. So praise him with a squeaky voice and a nasally tone. And tone-deaf ears make a joyful noise unto the Lord. Serve the Lord with gladness. Let's pray. Lord, have mercy on us. 
Come to the aid of your people. We need your help. For we ask it in Jesus' name. Amen.